Welcome to TNT with Teresa Quinlan and Reese Thomas. We are friends from across the pond on a life evolution. We want to bring you topics that challenge your status quo, guests that help you think differently, and nuggets of wisdom that spark being. Being what? You. Authentic you. Today we welcome a dynamic duo, Dahlia Feldham and Mark LeBusque. Hang on tight while we introduce our guests for today's episode. Dahlia Feldham is the founder of Flow Leadership Consultancy, enabling organizations to promote a more authentic, happy, and psychologically safe working culture. She spent over two decades as a C-suite global marketing executive where she led work on some of the world's most iconic ad campaigns, including Tampax Mother Nature and Always Like a Girl. Dahlia holds an executive master's degree in consulting and coaching for change, along with a happiness factor diploma from the Happiness Studies Academy. She teaches the science of happiness and suffering as a professor at the Singapore Management University. She's an executive coach and an international speaker, including her Dare to Lead Like a Girl TEDx. She's a mother of three and a wife to an entrepreneurial husband. And to keep her life in flow, she's a certified yoga instructor. Mark LaBusque, universally known as the human manager, and his proven techniques for elevating leaders and energizing employees make him an internationally sought-after speaker, facilitator, mentor, and coach. His books, Being Human and The Little Book of Human, have challenged the way managers and organizations view the value of the 100-year-old management system and has sparked a more human approach across the globe. Mark has developed and refined his human manager model for over 25 years in sales, operations, and general management, delivering measurable improvements in employee engagement, team performance, and business results, even in today's climate of fast-paced change and uncertainty. Mark is Harvard Business School trained and an accredited practitioner in adaptive leadership and instincts at work, and he is affectionately known as a certified bogan. Mark has an innate ability to both speak and seek the truth, provoke humans to step into their own reality, and skillfully combines practicality and simplicity with textbook theory. Welcome to TNT, Dahlia and Mark. Hey, great to be here. Yeah, great to be here, thank you. This particular podcast, like reason I would like to talk about obsession, obsession in a good way, passion in a very good way. And oftentimes that can come from our own personal experiences, right? From what we've experienced in our youth, what we experienced in our adulthood. Sometimes it's a pivot point. And today we're talking about, or titled the episode, Taming a Bully. And we'd love to be able to talk about this topic from your perspective and your experiences. So who would like to kick us off? Dahlia, would you like to do that? As you said nicely, turning your pain into your purpose. So let me share a little bit the story of two extremes. So I started in uh, Procter & Gamble in 1998 in Geneva. And, you know, a few months into my role, I was in the office of my general manager because one of my launches hit a wall and, you know, we were trying to understand what to do. And I was sitting in his office, super frustrated and angry. And when I get frustrated, I tear up. 
And I was so horrified, right? Crying in the office of my general manager, two levels above. So I was frantically trying to regain my composure. And my boss, Jim, who is a friend and mentor until today, he looked at me, he offered me a box of tissues, and then he said something I'll always remember. He said, Dalia, don't you ever be embarrassed for crying in the office again. That's a sign of your passion. And passion, as you said earlier, is your superpower. And then he added, and you ever, if you ever work for someone that doesn't appreciate that, walk away. They don't deserve you. Wow, right? I was so empowered. And I must say for the next 17 years that I was in Procter & Gamble, I had many managers like Jim that believed in me and I was queen of passion. My career just went from strength to strength. But it wasn't until I reached the lowest point of my career that I really understood what Jim was talking about. So fast forward 17 years and I decided to leave Procter & Gamble and join another company as Chief Marketing Officer for Asia. The job was a dream job. I was in charge of 100 people across Asia, you know, everything I could dream of. I was head of marketing. I loved the vision, the culture of the company, the CEO and the CMO's vision. I mean, to turn around the, the company to be more consumer based and that's why they were bringing me in. So everything seemed like a dream. Maybe two months into the role, I got a new manager. And, you know, it took me a week to realize that, uh, how can I put it politely, we were like fire and water, okay? So I was the fire all about passion and people and creativity. And he was numbers and scorecards and results over people. And, you know, ROI, return on investments. We used to joke between us and say that it's kind of ROI or you die, yeah. right? So that kind of was the, was the feeling. So anyway, one morning I'm summoned into his office, right? Because he liked to do that, you know, pull me out from another meeting, like called into the headmaster. And I enter his office and he is berating me. Now, I love feedback, right? Tough love feedback, you know, I love it. But I can tell you there was no love in that feedback. It was just, you know, very personal, very humiliating, you know, complete berating, and I'm holding it in. So by now I'm C-suite woman, the only woman actually on the team, and I'm holding my composure. And then he starts berating my team. And that's when I lost it, right? <laughs> because I know, knew how hard they were working. So anyway, I became so frustrated that I started to tear. Now he looked at me and he smiled and he offered me this box of tissues. And I can tell you for a moment, I had this warm, fuzzy feeling, remembering my first, first boss. But then I kind of looked up and I still remember this weird smile. And he turned around that tissue box and I couldn't believe my eyes. On the other side of that tissue box was a handmade sticker he prepared in advance, which read, Dahlia's tissue box. Yes. <gasps> That's how I reacted. I mean, are you kidding me? This is like, this is an HR assault. And he's like, oh, come on, Dahlia. Stop being so emotional. It's, it's just boy banter. I know you have a sense of humor. So that uh, went on for quite a while. Um, but I wasn't raised to give up. Um, and I was determined not to give up. 
So I decided to persevere. And I can tell you, and we can talk about it a little bit more, but just to close off the story, I mean, the first year I was all about, you know, fighting. I was head of women's network. I was, I was quite a confident young lady. So I was, you know, given feedback and volunteering. And I ended up, you know, realizing that you can't change someone that doesn't want to change. So I focused inwards to change myself, you know, and, and fix everything that he felt needed fixing. And we did deliver a great scorecard at the end of that year, but I felt sick because I realized that I just wasn't true to my superpowers. Mm -hmm. And that's where at the third year, I made a decision that I need to leave this uh, toxic environment, but not before I regain my spark, right? So he wanted science and I was determined to bring back my heart and my art to the workplace. So together with my team, we created this campaign. It was extremely data-driven, but also super creative. And when that won an EFI award, which is an advertising awards for business results and creativity, I knew I found my spark and I was ready to move on. Uh, and that's kind of a little bit the pain and I can share more a little bit later on, but I've since decided to turn my pain into my purpose and uh, take a degree in organizational psychology. And now I work with organization on bringing purpose and joy to the workplace. So that's, uh, that's me. Wow. Uh, <laughs> fabulous story. Thank you so much for sharing it. And for our for our audience, we record via Zoom so we can actually see each other, which is great because body language means so much when we're telling our stories. And one of the things I want, I picked up on when you were sharing the end bit of your story there was you signaled around sort of your throat and upper chest when you had said, when I had to like do, I had to come back into my power and you held your hand mm -hmm. around this area of your body. I'm interested if that, if that superpower was telling you that it was being squished and you felt lots of tension in your throat and your upper chest was that a physical signal you would get quite often <laughs> it's an interesting point i mean definitely and and there's a lot i went into research that and i actually did my thesis on that but you know it bullying impacts you in a very deep level and it did come i literally felt like i was suffocating i wasn't able to bring my full self like all my strengths were not only not appreciated, but diminished, right? I was too positive, too good with my people, too passionate, right? Um, so I really felt like, you know, my strengths were not appreciated. And then, you know, there was an overblow of kind of, you need to change to how I believe you need to be. So I felt literally suffocated. So mm -hmm. thanks for picking that up. Mm -hmm. Marvelous. Yeah, a lot of your power comes from that sort of, if you want to say, throat chakra. And so often when you're having that uh, experience and you're not really sure how you can vocalize it and you can you have this kind of unconscious bodily function and even when you're just talking about it, you're reminded to that place that you felt you were stifled, your voice wasn't being heard. Interesting to see how you use that power to turn that into your purpose and how now you are literally that voice going into different organizations and helping them to uncover their power really and you know, i love when you talked about you, you, you could take all the criticism for yourself but as soon as you talked about your team you were just it was too much it had like a picture of a you know a proud lioness and her and her cubs and her, and her pride and you were just like i can take it for me but i'm not i'm not letting you say this about my team you know we've done everything right and we haven't done it how you want to do it but we've done it how i believe it should be and, and how it should be in my heart so really really inspiring story thank you so much 
Oh, Mark. I know sometimes it's hard to go second, but I think you're the man for the job, right? You're the man for the job. Yeah. Well, uh, let's give it a crack. Eh? So, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to, this is going to be the shit story now. This is about the bad guy. So, you know, let, let the good person go first. You've, you've set me up beautifully here, Dahlia. I, uh, I remember when we first spoke about this and you said, you should get on and tell your story about being a bully. And I can tell my story about not being a bully. And Evolved bully. And that's the beauty. <laughs> so here we go. So, um, Look, I'm going to say, I think, like a lot of young, ambitious, mid-20-year-old males, all I cared about was uh, how I was going to look, really, in front of other people. And I played the system beautifully. I was technically good at what I did. So as you're technically good at what you do, you start getting promoted. And you get promoted to a point then when you start to manage other people. I had sort of set myself up. I don't say I was a bad person, but I'd set myself up to be very, very focused on on a couple of things. One was a title that I wanted. By the time, before I got to 30, I wanted a title. And I was determined to get to that title, whatever I had to do to get there. Um, and the other thing was, is to be successful, you had to, I had to continue to demonstrate that, that I could deliver all the things you talked about, Dahlia. I could deliver on the KPIs, I could deliver on the, the sales numbers. I could absolutely squeeze the very last drop of effort out of my people and do that in, in, in a whole lot of, horrible ways, I guess. So at about 20, I reckon 22, 23, I started to get promoted. And I think you become a, a bit of a, you're caught in your environment. So you become part of your environment. And now I'm not going to blame my environment totally because I've got a part in that mess as well. But look, I was really, really savage on my people. It was about delivering in order to make me look good. When I was doing it, there's no way that was bullying. That was driving for results, absolutely driving for results. But when I look back on it now, it was, it was borderline bullying to bullying at some point in time um, to the extent of actually putting a private investigator on one of my salespeople for a week to prove that they weren't doing their job, sitting them down and having a conversation with them and literally an entrapment in the room to go, walk me through your sales report. Tell me what you did at this call and this call and this call and this call. And then say, well, now you need to tell me what you really did because I've got evidence that you didn't do that. And that makes my skin crawl today. Uh, what I would do when I was in good mark would be just sit down with that person and try and understand what was going on for them. But back then, it didn't matter. If you're not delivering on your results, I'm going to find a way to deal with you. And uh, so I found lots of ways. That was one way. Some of the other things that I used to do were well, look, undermining people. And the other thing, and I think you'll all relate to this as we listen, is, is claiming credit for work done by other people, not letting them stand up. I like to talk about this idea that the manager shouldn't always be in the photo. Well, actually, I wanted to be in the front row of the photo, and usually the person taking the picture was the person who did the work. Things like that. I can say oh, today I'm not proud of it. Back then, I was absolutely proud of it. I, I used to have a nickname at one stage. They called me the baby-faced assassin. <laughs> Because they said that, you know, I looked young and they said I could go in and, and this was, this is ruthless, but I could fake building trust with people and then literally do them in, like do what I had to do to make sure that once they trusted me that I could, I could do with them what I wanted. You look at that look on your face, Dahlia, it's making me, making me, I was like, I'm not that bad a person. I spent a fair bit of my early days doing those sorts of things. And then the karma bus turned up for me. We had a, we had a restructure of two businesses and, they offered me a job and because I'd never failed at anything, I was sort of the second in charge rather than in charge. 
and um, I lost it and I lost my shit and I just decided that I'm leaving. So I took a redundancy at 29. I got my title for about six months, but then I got made redundant. And then I'll say I just continued to behave the same way in other organisations until I got to a point, and I think as you get older, and you know, what am I now, 53, but I reckon 15 years ago, I started to wonder if there was a better way. And ultimately 10 years ago, I ran an experiment. The question I asked myself was, what would happen if I treated my people like human beings? So for two years, I ran an experiment, which literally totally changed the way I did things. I think it was building up for a while. I didn't wake up one day and say, I should do that. But for two years, I literally did the opposite to what I did when I was a 24-year-old egotistical young male who was going to rule the world and, and saw amazing results come from that. So if you talk, you know, talk about that, that purpose piece is we, we, we want two things. I think human beings in particular, we want deep connection and we want a strong sense of belonging. And, and the four words that I work to are, are making every human belong. So, so from being bad Mark, as I call him, I became what I call good Mark. And then now today, I have the pleasure of working with sometimes people were like that I was like when I was 24, just to help show them that there's a, there is actually a better way to do this and be successful. You don't have to be an ass like I was. You can actually do it differently. So I've done the bully. I've done the human. And I've got to say that I feel much more comfortable in my skin being the human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love hearing your story there. I have lots of flashbacks. So having also worked in sales and recruitment for in corporate for about 15 years and, and also over in, in your neck of the woods in Sydney, I worked for a big corporate uh, recruitment there and going to see all the different CFOs and, and MDs and all these kind of people. I'm reminded that most of those people acted and behaved and did exactly what you said, that not because they thought they were bullying, but because that's the way that they've been taught. That's the way that they thought they needed to be uh, successful and the way that they needed to live up to that masters of the universe type of uh, persona that, you know, we, we all learned when we were growing up. But I'm obviously very glad to hear that there was a transition piece. And I, and I know the amazing work you've been doing over the last 10, 15 years. But I mean, just to know what it was that made you change that. Was, was it, was it you, you found that the, uh, the old method just wasn't getting you to that top level? Or was there a a human personal touch? Was it a different leader who, you know, connected with your heart, maybe you realized there was a different way? And then on top of that, the way you describe it as an experiment, like when you say that word, it makes me think, is that really, truly human? Like, I'm doing an experiment on you. And it, <laughs> it maybe harks back to that, the, the guy who set the private investigator on to uh, someone for a, for a week to, to, to monitor what they were doing. And we're like, don't, don't send me back into the fetal position <laughs> in the corner of the room, sucking my thumb, mate. I don't want to go. And so um, a couple of things for me around that. What, one of the things that happened over 20 odd years was that, I sort of started to get to the point where I'd be thinking, we always had this change, these change programs and things are going to change and it's going to get better and, and it never did. So I started to become less of the guy that drank the Kool-Aid of the way it was and more of the guy who started asking questions why. So I think over 10 or 15 years in between, I just actually started to become almost like the voice of why, why don't we do something for the people? Because I, I just started to, it just didn't feel right. I must say something about the experiment. The first experiment I did was on myself, the experiment to become a better human being. And I think that's where it had to start. And then, and that was like holding up a mirror and going, stop being a dick, stop being an ass, stop doing all the things that you do because they're not, they're not actually serving you well. In fact, my dearly departed mum did say to me, I can say this like 24 hours before she passed, she got 
cancer and she died pretty quickly, she said to me, just stop being an arsehole because you're better than that. And I think people who are um, not far off from leaving this earth, I don't know whether any of you have been through the process, they get pretty bloody honest with you. So I had, there, was a bit of a, there was a bit of a push from my mum, but I think the big thing for me was that I wanted to start to challenge the system because the system was rotten to the core and it still is. Initially, I ran this experiment, I call it, because I actually thought it was the right thing to do. People want to be happy. People want to be engaged. They want to enjoy work. They want to be developed. They want some work-life balance. So why don't you just try some things to see what will change? And, and so ultimately, for two years, we did that. The interesting thing for me, though, going from the idea of it was the right thing to do, when I left the corporate world in 2014, obviously, when you start your own business, there's not a whole lot of work coming at you at a million miles an hour. So I'm getting one or two days a month of work and I've got a lot of time to sit and think. So I started to think about why this work. I ask myself these questions every three months now. Why, why this? Why this work? Why now? And then why me? And what it came back to for me, and I've shared this story with Dahlia, is the belonging piece came from I lost my dad to, to suicide 18 years ago. And I remember he had two attempts to take his life and he failed on the first one. He left us a note after the first one, which basically talked about, I don't belong, I'm a burden. He'd had a slight stroke. He was a very independent man. And even though you couldn't physically see anything, it took away his independence, which really took away his life. And so I don't belong, I'm a burden, and I'd be better not to be here. And, and I remember sitting around as a family talking about it with him and, and everyone had sort of been talking about how happy they were that he was still here and, and as, as I was too. It was great that he was not looking to try that again. And I actually said to him, I think you're going to do it again because you're a perfectionist, but I'm going to do whatever I can to stop that. And um, I didn't. He, I failed. Six months later, he, he finished the job off. And... And so the belonging thing has become a really big piece for me. It's like, what can we do to help other human beings feel a sense of belonging? And that's what drives my work today. Managers have an enormous privilege to help shape the lives of other human beings. And, and part of it is the simplicity of, I need to know, as an individual, I'd like to know that what I contribute to an organisation in my team, to my department and to the organisation, helps me to belong to that. This is why I, I do that work. Back then it was because I thought it was right. Now I've been through something that I don't, I know many people have been through, but it's a horrible thing to think that someone feels like they, they can't belong. That's what sits in behind. And every day I ask myself the question when I get up, it's like, I hate the word make, making every human belong. People say you can't make it happen, but that word came out. I can't unhear that word now. I ask myself a question, what can I do to make someone feel like they belong today? And at the end of the night tonight, I'll put my head on my pillow at some point in time and I'll be like, what did I do today to help one human being feel like they belong? And if it's just one a day, I think I've had a good day. Mission so that's the, that's the, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mark, I just, you know, Mark and I had this mind-blowing conversation a few months back and I mean, first of all, I applaud your vulnerability in sharing that and I just found it really fascinating you know, the whole dynamic, I can tell you, I became so fa fascinated with the psychology of bullying in a way that I actually went and studied that. So I did my master's in psychological safety and psychological danger at the workplace. First of all, I learned that sadly, it's way, way too common. There's numbers of one in two employees have felt some kind of bullying throughout their career. 
we know the famous numbers of engagement, only 80, you know, 87% of employees are not happy at work because mm. they believe they're not appreciate, appreciated as human beings. And we know that falls straight into the bottom line. I saw one research of $7 trillion in stress-related disease, studied the impact of bullying, so not only job satisfaction and performance, but it really leads to mental health issues. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of cases of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it was really fascinating for me to get into kind of the whole dynamic and especially the psychodynamic of bullying. And I think to Mark's point, I'll just share two points here. I mean, I'm an extremely result-driven individual. I never miss a number. So we were after the same thing, me and my boss. We just had a very different way of getting at it. And I think that was one point. But the other interesting element, the research talks about it, the dance of death. Because at the end of the day, we both wanted the same psychodynamic teacher of appreciation. He needed appreciation and I needed feedback. And he told me, I'm not going to give you any positive feedback because it's a waste of my energy and I'm only going to focus on what you need to fix. You know, one of the things that I learned that I was over-reliant on external validation. And I talk it now about the feminine and the masculine energy. Leadership is genderless. I mean, my TED talk, Dare to Lead Like a Girl, is more provocation that the world has become too masculine of power over people versus power with people. But I truly believe that leadership is genderless. And you need to combine the positive masculine, which is direction and logic, with the positive feminine, which is empathy and teamwork. But the world has fallen into the wounded masculine, I call it, which is results at the expense of people. It's what I also learned sometimes, you know, what happened to me is after 17 years of being in that positive masculine, positive feminine, because I am quite an assertive person and, you know, logic, etc. But I feel when I was attacked, fight or flight reaction, I dropped into the wounded feminine, which is around being so dependent on what one person thinks. And it's only in the third year when I said, I am going to go back to my strengths. And only when I went back to my strengths was I able to perform. There's a whole dynamic there. There's a whole neuroscience because our body perceives psychological threats as bad as physical threat. And I think the other thing that Mark's story taught me, and we spoke before I finished my thesis, but I actually focused my thesis on this question. Can you coach yourself out of a toxic environment? I really wanted to know, was there anything else that I could have done? And it started from six months into the role, a lady that knew us both took me for coffee. And she said, yeah, you know, he has this reputation, you know, it's all about the numbers, etc. But only you can change him. And her intentions were good, but that was such a weight on me that I can change him. And I knew how to manage up. I had the experience of that in the past. So I felt, okay, it almost turned to a challenge that I will change him. I tried to put in this empathy point. And I would talk to him very directly. He would say, Dalia, you think I don't care? For me, care is giving you the maximum bonus every year. So there was this weird psychological dynamic there, but I kept on feeling, and this is really important because I'm fascinated with this topic as well as kind of, you know, domestic violence. And you hear the same story. You feel you can change from the inside. And what I learned is that yes, 
you can increase your resilience, okay? And that's why now I'm passionate on positive psychology and working with organization on driving resilience and joy at work. You can increase, you know, focus, as I said, focusing on your strengths, physical and mental perseverance, reaching out to people, you know, emotional regulation, etc. So adversity, yes, you can deal with adversity by, by building your resilience. However, and this is a very important however, when in a toxic environment, there's really only one strategy that works. And that is zero tolerance. Zero. Zero tolerance is about putting the boundaries very clear, very early. Sorry, I don't accept being talked to like this. This is not going to happen here. And this is the consequences if it continues. You know, people say, but isn't that disrespectful? Well, you know, how you've been talking to is not exactly respectful, right? And it's about being respectful for yourself. And until today, I kept on thinking, yes, I did complain to the local HR and the global HR to some level. But until today, I don't understand why I didn't submit ethics line complaint. Because I kept on thinking I can change it from the inside. So that's a very important point. And I sometimes refer to Muhammad Ali's quote, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. So there's some moments where this empathy and the humor, et cetera, now it's time for zero tolerance. And a friend, you know, I spoke with, is like zero tolerance, otherwise you die a death of a thousand paper cuts. Mm. Every time you accept boy banter is another paper cut. And we need to be really on guard to say, you know, this is behavior that I'm not going to accept. To Mark's point, you can't change someone that doesn't want to change unless there's leverage. And leverage can't come from the inside. Leverage has to come from the outside, whether it's you know, the manager's manager or HR tools or something that happens you know, in Mark's life that makes him realize, wait, there's a better way. Just from my side, I think the first thing is to label the behavior. Like Mark said, it didn't feel like bullying for him then. It didn't feel like bullying. I, I didn't dare to say the word bullying until I left the organization. It took me three years to label the behavior. It only happened when my first boss, that friend and mentor, asked me to write down all my experiences. And then when I shared it with him and my husband, he, Dalia, this is bullying. And then I'm like, whoa, you're right. This is bullying. Why don't we label it sometimes? There's a whole load of research around cognitive dissonance. You know, I'm a strong, confident lady. I was head of women's network. I fired several men on, on misconduct to other women. But when it comes to you, it's, no, I'm not a victim of bullying. So I think a very, very important first step is to face reality as it is and to label the behavior. And then the second thing is what I call act. So not being passive. The C is about setting clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. And the T I use for talk and tell. Talking directly with the manager. And if that doesn't help, going to the next level. But anything you need to do to have zero tolerance and not accept it. Which is then we're moving into you're challenging the system. Because the yes. system often permits that kind of behavior, especially if it is well tolerated as, yeah, 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 you know, we just know that he's like that. 
Like when someone He's not a else, good people person. Right, yeah. right. When someone comes up to you, you start working in a workplace and someone else in that workplace comes up to you and said, oh, I should probably let you know about your boss. He's an asshole. Just so you know, he does these kinds of things that are really terrible. I'm like, wait, people know that and he's still working here? How does that work? That's like a first signal for us to be able to say, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I want this job if we tolerate this kind of behavior here. And I think that's the issue. That's where the HR, the boss of the boss, because Mark was delivering results. My boss was delivering, there is research that there are results in the early years because of this fear, but that these results are not sustainable because people, you know, burn out, et cetera. This is the first thing that I always say to companies, you need to assess people skills as important as business skills. And if you have someone who's an excellent strategic thinker that delivers great results, but he's known not to be a good people, then you don't promote him. Not every manager can be a leader. The difference between a manager and a leader is that the leader has followers and he can only have followers when he's a good people person. So companies need to step up because it's affecting their bottom line, because they may get results in a year but they may burn out the organization. And on the long term, they're paying a very hefty cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, if anything, a leader, the, the people skills need to be evaluated much higher than the, than, the, than the results thing because you really need to give that responsibility to the people who are doing the work and not when you talk about your situation, you know, there's a couple of things that maybe the, this guy was aware that you were trying to change him. And so he was, you know, his, his natural reaction was to fight back even stronger against that. And also the sense that he knew you were doing such a good job. He probably even knew that he didn't really need any help from him, but he needed to assert his position up, like literally above you in the, in the pecking order by being a bastard or doing these things to you that you didn't really need really just to make you aware that he was still there or he was still, he was still one step above you. And I don't know how high he was on the, on the rung. I mean, what the people even higher up, how they were responding to it. it shit rolls downhill kind of idea that they were all doing the same thing. But um, hope not. Yeah, That's so it was really a matter that he was head of Asia. So the upper management could see things, but it took them too long to see and to react. I think the other fascinating dynamic is that fear is such a strong emotion. After two years, and, and I consider myself quite fearless. And after two years in that job, I kind of sat down and, and I realized that every email I was checking 17 times because I knew he would shred me to bits. And then I realized I have this fear. Whoa, what is that emotion? It was just fascinating also to observe many people were just shut down and do what they need to do so they don't get attacked as well. You even get some mirroring of the leader, like this behavior becomes acceptable. And I think that's where Mark and I are so passionate about kind of taking it forward because it doesn't work anymore. It may have worked in the 80s when it was all about productivity and simple tasks, etc. But in today's world, especially working from home, if you don't have employees super engaged and passionate, it doesn't work. I mean, the system is failing big time. We see it all over the place. I think it is a time that every leader, you know, faces himself in the mirror and understands the skills that are needed in today's worlds are different than what may have been needed in the past or may have been tolerated in the past. 
And it will become, you know, even more evident with Gen Y and Z. I have, you know, my three kids at home, you know, they don't take any shit. Sorry for my language, right? That's okay. I mean, We're dropping those words all over. We've heard other words like that. It's yeah, okay. Exactly. Mark, I wonder if you could pick that up and talk about your views on challenging the system, challenging the status quo, how the game needs to change. Because you played it well when it was, and potentially in some workplaces still is, that kind of behavior. You learned how to play yeah. it well. You've got to be prepared to be thrown out of the system, I think. So if you're going to take the system on, the system's going to throw you out at some point in time. And that's what happened to me, literally. Now, if you think about my two-year experiment, let's just go to the let's go to the bottom line results of the two-year experiment. Two hundred and thirty-eight percent ahead of our sales target in year one, and they tripled our sales target in year two, and we hit a triple target by one hundred and ninety-eight percent. The questions were asked like, "How do you do it?" I said, "I just treat them like humans," and they're like, "No, there must be something." I'm like, "No, no, just just treat them like humans." So then I went into HR, which which I really enjoyed my time in HR, but. It didn't take long for people in HR to be threatened by this guy that wasn't from HR and he didn't have the technical background. And so 16 months later, I was made redundant. And that, and that was okay. I sort of half engineered that. So I don't mind that. I wanted to move on. But if you would just imagine that the system that said, we love your results, but we don't particularly like the way you go about getting them, that sort of told me that I wasn't long for that place. So you've got to understand that the system that we work in is really, really, it's as resilient as we're trying to be. It's been around for a hundred years and it's not about to give up what it believes is its rightful place. My advice to people is push at the edges of the system, but know when to push and when to pull back from it. I actually don't work that way. I just push and push and push until the system bounces back and kicks me out. That's the reality of what happened to me, but, but I'm, I'm okay with that. How do I do it today? Here's a couple of things for me. One was fear was really interesting for me. I remember sort of late 30s, early 40s, and, and I'd be talking to people who were managing me and they were sort of in their mid 50s and they would just be absolutely fearful of their boss. And I used to think about this. I think, how could I be mid 50s and going home in my car and thinking to my, on the train or whatever and thinking, geez, I'm lucky I got through that day and I'm, I'm, I'm in fear and I'm carrying that fear into my, into my home and myself and whatever else. So it was like, I don't want to live like that. And then the other one, the word arsehole has been used a bit, so I'll throw it in. When people ask me what I do for a job, I say I'm in the field of arsehole eradication. And, and, and literally my job when I work with organisations is to get rid of arseholes. And I'm really clear with my prospective clients. I say to them up front, if we get this right, 30% of your top team won't be here in 12 months' time. And they're like, really? And I go, yep. And, and it starts happening pretty quick because what I teach people to do is to not look past and don't look away from the stuff that we've, that Dahlia talked about. So, well, the stuff we look away from, we're not looking away from that anymore. And when people do it, there are consequences and they will go. And I see it happen. And, and like, the other good thing about that is the people below them, where the shit, when that shit flows downhill recently you talked about, and they're covered in it, they look up and they go, and they wipe it out of their eyes and they go, Oh, he's gone. So great. There is hope here. And then another one goes because we don't accept that behavior anymore. Now, I can also get fired pretty quickly by my clients. You talked about fearlessness before, Dahlia. To me, my word is fearless. I'm just going to be fearless with my work. If you don't like it, don't hire me. But I'm going to tell you straight up front that here's what's going to happen. 
And if you've got budget but not appetite to work, don't come and work with me. You need appetite and then budget. I, I tell to people, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the stupid thing is people think if we get someone in for two days, we play a few funny games and everyone feels good and then we're going to be great. I'm like, this is work takes years to get right. So I don't know if I've gone around in a, in a big way, but my advice is be respectful of the old system because it'll bounce back and hit you when you least expect it. The second thing there is speak your truth. It's really important. And the third thing is this, is the game of human is a long game. Someone says to me, we want you for two days and then we'll have a follow-up day in three months and then we should be right. I'm like, go and get yourself a rinse and repeat consultant and you'll catch each other falling backwards at some off-site thing somewhere and you might get paintball out and do that sort of stuff, but that's not fixing your problem. Your problem is, is that your business is full of toxic, bad mark types. And a lot of fear. And the fear that comes with that, like people are just fearing that I'm going to exist. We're a survival species. We want to survive. We avoid loss. We don't resist change. We avoid personal loss. So if personal loss is losing my job, I'm just going to be subservient. And I don't feel like I belong because that's not my, that's actually not my tribe there. So I don't belong. I fear stuff. I go to work because I need the money. That's a bullying factory. That's what that becomes. That ends up to be $7 trillion in stress impact disease that Talia was talking about earlier. And we're not really measuring the impact of what those behaviors are doing to our employees. I I certainly don't believe it. Like an engagement score of like, okay, so 87% of people are disengaged. It just becomes something, I think, so readily available as a statistic for people to say, yeah, we know, and just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, "Uh uh-huh. It's supposed to be like that, right? Everybody's is like that. Yeah, we, we, know, we know that. So what we'll do is we'll, we'll start up a wellness program. And what we'll do for our people is we'll have a lunch and learn session every month and they can come and learn how to be resilient for an hour and then go back to work and be resilient. It's like, no, we've got to get rid of the, the fear out of humans because it, it stops their creativity. It stops their potential. It stops everything. So Mark and I complement each other with what we do and that's kind of where... The partnership and understanding is, you know, Mark once said, within these assholes, you know, maybe 10, 15% are real diehard assholes where they have a kind of principal system there. Most of them are unaware assholes. And that's kind of the majority that we work with in the sense that they want to become better leaders. They're not aware. So they, you know, they would talk about other assholes not realizing that they do similar behavior. So it's a a matter of kind of really raising, and that's why, you know, your leadership can only be assessed by your people. And then really understanding and creating a culture where psychological safety is high enough that you really share, you bring your whole self uh, to life. So I do believe in resilience training. I mean, not a yoga class once in a month. It's a whole holistic program of kind of building because the first way of dealing with adversity because you can build resilience, you can build happiness. This 87% can go down significantly by your own doing. And that's, even that is not done in the organization. And that's the first place to start. And then it complemented by really kind of doing the hard look that I love having a provocator like Mark going in and say 30% out of the door, you don't belong here. Um, And I think this is kind of where companies need to take. They need to work with the organizations in building resilience through a prolonged 
not a one-off kind of yoga, but a holistic program. And they need to take a zero tolerance type of approach to really look hard in the mirror and, and understand and eradicate assholes and find those 30% that everyone's already pointing at them. You know, we come to it from very different places, but we have the same mission. To believe that a balance is exactly where the greatest amount of success will be. I call that the, um, the skillful art of duality, the ability to hug someone and kick him in the ass at the same time. <laughs> well, <that's>, <laughs> we normally like to finish with a sort of hashtag not anymore. What are the things you'd like our listeners to think about so they can do differently and, and be differently? But I think you've already given us like, so many great golden tips there. What, one thing that just struck me when we were talking in the Dali situation, it, it was, and, and Mark reinforces in his, when you're talking about you know, 50 year old bosses driving home in fear, like you were coming from a place of fear, he was coming from a place of fear, and when the two fears collide, it's just going to end up in something ugly. There's there's no real way to, to get away from that. And it reminded me of this story about the higher up you get in the tree, the corporate ladder, there are, there are fewer branches, and then you know, people hang on higher and tighter, and, and people are fighting. And it made me think of like a David Attenborough thing with the you know, monkeys in the tree and the, the alpha monkey, and these people are coming in, they're trying to challenge it, and they're just really getting really vociferous and, and as ugly as it can be. And, and then you said the way to resolve this is to treat them like humans. And some people get it, some people don't. And the sad fact is that there isn't a, a quick manual or a program or a 10-step process that everyone can just roll out and copy to resolve that. So that's kind of why that old command and control thing is so successful because it's sad to say that it's very simple and the simple things last longer and, and harder to get rid of. So, all right. So thank you so much for all those amazing tips. How are people going to be able to get in touch with you? If there's one thing that we can do more, I mean, the TED Talk, Dare to Lead Like a Girl, please view it, share it, pay it forward. Of course, on my website, daliafeldheim.com, on LinkedIn. In Quarantine Hotel, finishing my book, Dare to Lead Like a Girl. So it's due late 2020, early 21. And I'd love to hear your feedback. Thank you. Awesome. Yeah, look, website's best, marklebusk.com. So on there, there's, um, I've got a couple of books on there. I've got my podcast, which is called Simply Practically Human. And you can sign up for a free newsletter. And there's a whole lot of other bits and pieces. You get these lovely T-shirts on there as well if you want them. But uh, that's the best place to find me. Awesome. So look, we always like to end the uh, conversation with a rapid-fire Q&A. And... All right, number one, which emotion catches you off guard the most? Dahlia. Fear. Mark? Um, yeah, fear. Absolutely fear. Yep. Claustrophobic fear. That's what gets me very quickly. Okay. And what do you do to regulate that emotion in the moment? Love. There's only one emotion that conquers fear, and that is love. That's a big learning for me. I, I think straight away of the thing I call my perspective line is like, is, is this really important right now? Is it something that's going to kill me or is it really something that did someone not put a dish in the dishwasher? They're like, whatever it is. So it's like, it's perspective. Okay. Number three, uh, what's next in your personal evolution? Wow. So yeah, I took my pain into my purpose and I'm working now with uh, big tech companies on bringing this whole uh, program of resilience and joy. Yeah, bringing happiness and uh, to as many people as possible. That's what's next for me. Uh, mastering bar chords on my acoustic guitar is my next <laughs> part of my evolution because I've been playing for 10 years and I still cannot, fat, small fat fingers just don't work on a guitar. So that's my, that's my evolution. 
Try a ukulele, that's what I like for me. I've got um, a ukulele as well as a banjo. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number four, uh, when your best friend is having a meltdown, what do you say to them? I have many friends uh, having meltdowns. I think the first thing is really, you know, managing your own energy. So strengthening your own core, uh, you know, sleep right, eat right. Just look at kind of what I call selfness, taking care of self so that they have enough energy to deal. And then to Mark's point, perspective, stand back from the drama so you can enjoy the movie. So six words that were said to me by Professor Marty Linsky, who's one of the fathers of adaptive leadership, was, uh, what's your part in the mess? So when one of my friends is having a meltdown, that's the question I'll ask him. Don't start looking out that way. What's your part in the mess? Awesome. And lastly, in this moment, what are you most looking forward to? For me, it's obvious. I'm day 12 of my quarantine uh, I went to put my eldest in a leadership program six weeks ago. So I haven't seen my husband and my two other kids in six weeks. So that's what I'm looking forward to Saturday, just at home with my family. Beautiful. Given I've been locked up for a very long time, just, <laughs> I've got a cafe up the road where I can go up and get a coffee or a juice at the moment and stand out the front. I just want to go and sit inside it and have breakfast there. Like I used to do every, every Saturday. And I think if anything, this, this whole thing has taught me is how many things we take for granted that we were usually able to do that we just can't do at the moment. So simple things. Happiness is in the simple pleasures. So That's true. Beautiful Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us and sharing your wisdom and, and sharing your story with our audience. It's been a, a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks it's for having fun. us. And uh, it's been fun. Thank you very much. Hope we get to catch up again at some other stage. So thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of TNT. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review. And when you're ready for your personal evolution, check out Reese at trueselfcoaching.com. And for your emotional intelligence revolution, check out Teresa at iqeqtq.com.